0: Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast, the CPD series. In this educational series, Louise is in conversation with numerous experts to discuss the many aspects of food and lifestyle which impact on early childhood development. This CPD is linked to Louise's series of short courses for the early years and education sector. How Food Shapes Your Child CPD courses show you why feeding a child is so much more than putting food on their plates. Hello and
1: welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast. As part of the CPD series for How Food Shapes Your Child, I am delighted to welcome Marnie Wills to the Building a Skeleton and Building the Muscular System subject matter. Marnie is an entrepreneur mummy of two little girls and a current international athlete. She loves all things to do with health, fitness and physical education and is the founder of Sporty Minis which is an early years education franchise focusing on physical education on a mission to get children more active. And with being active, we know that children become more confident and love things to do with sports and physical activities, which is so important in terms of shaping those healthy early habits. So, Marnie, thank you so much for coming along and joining me on this CPD podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Louise. I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite a while, so I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. So just to tell people a bit more about yourself and your background and, and, you know, what led you to do what you do, what is it that kind of drove you to this point? What made you kind of carve out a career in this area and why is it so important to you?
2: Yeah, so um, I think I... You know, I'm really lucky that I grew up in Australia. It is, you know, known to be a really sporty country. Um, I have a very sporty family. I did lots of sports and physical activities from a really young age. So from about four, you know, I was doing after school and weekend sports like swimming and Um, athletics. Uh, We even had grass netball. You know, I did ten pin bowling, taekwondo. There were so many options and I just was exposed to so many different physical activities from such a young age, which I think really developed my physical literacy early, which means, you know, I I loved PE at school because I was so competent and confident. Um, And I think generally my personality traits are, you know, very much... Um, you know, I, I'm a bit of a motivator. I'm a bit of a leader. So that kind of la- naturally led me to being team captain and organizing team sports in secondary schools. Um, and you know, just going on through university and um, being in top teams and getting selected for state and international teams in different sports. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to do PE. And to be fair, I think I wanted to be a PE teacher probably from the age of about 12 or 13. Um, I loved my secondary school PE teachers. Um, and that, you know, that just led me to go to university. And then after university, I moved straight to London, um, and followed my passion for sport and stayed over here because, um, I was lucky enough to make, um, England teams for both indoor netball and touch rugby, um, which meant I got to travel most of Europe, um, playing sport while teaching PE in London schools. And I did that for about 10 years before starting my own physical education business. So yeah, I guess it's important to me because my whole life and its direction, even to this day, has been shaped through sport and physical activity.
1: Which is quite an amazing story and shows just how those early sort of influences in your in your sort of physical activity and your physical movement that shaped your habits and your passion, but also just became part of you and enabled you to have the amazing career that you've had and, and continue to have, which is showing just how important those early habits are. Because if we flip that over to what we often see with children, and I don't always refer to movement and activity with children as physical education or exercise, because for many, that can be quite daunting. And I'm quite similar to you. I don't have the international athlete bit, but I've always absolutely loved exercise. And I think I copied my older brothers in everything they did and and got into sort of running and triathlons from about the age of eight. So a little bit older than you, but very much the same it was I loved PE I was first to volunteer for things like cross-country that everyone else was ducking out I was first in there and and it's it's so true that when we have that positive experience prior to school and my experience of PE in secondary school is very much the same as yours if the PE teacher couldn't I remember taking over the class once and just absolutely loving it and it's so different to the flip side of somebody who is so daunted by that and for PE is such a traumatic memory and is such a traumatic experience to go through school and many children and I think an increasing number now to when I was at school are experiencing that early trauma and we know that that will not set them on a path that they love exercise and they embrace it and they they will actually shy away from it which obviously brings with it the host of health problems that we get with being sedentary. So shaping those early influences with movement is certainly so important
2: not just for our physical health but for our mental health as well yeah absolutely and I did an article recently um one in four of our children under seven do not get the recommended three hours activity a day And that activity is not sport. And this is, you know, the misconception that is out there about exercise and sport, you know, that children need to do exercise. No, they need to move their bodies. They need to learn to be active kids. They need to learn the essential fundamental movement skills which shape their physical development. And they are things like running, skipping, jumping, catching, hopping, balancing, stretching, kicking, climbing. You know, those fundamental movement skills allow children to develop um, their movement patterns, their problem-solving skills, um, you know, emotional and social resilience. Um, Not only are they building core strength, um, muscular development, um, cardiovascular development, all of those are related to simply by children being allowed to move their bodies in a fun, safe environment that they can you know, actively learn and explore three hours a day. And one in four of our children just don't get that. Mm, I know, it's a very, it is a very sad statistic when we
1: think that actually that three hours is just play and movement, not not PE, not exercise, not, not anything like that, just literally play and movement, which is what children are naturally sort of, they should be naturally designed to do that. And that should be their natural sort of go-to movement. And there are some studies, and I, I can't quote them exactly, that link the sort of inactivity so when we, we kind of have to sit still and how fired up our brain is and the more we move and the more we sort of you know oxygenate by moving not necessarily exercise just by moving the more oxygenated our body is and the more actually awake our brain is so when we're expecting children to sit and learn and concentrate and focus and problem solve and all of those things and then they're not moving they're not moving enough. They're not going to be able to do the the sort of the, the classroom based educational expectations of them as much as they would be if they were moving more. So it becomes a, a real knock on for all elements of childhood development, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that saying we we talk about it a lot in our sporting minis program is active body is a creative mind. Like you know, it's all about in our in our sessions for it to be structured from us, but led by the child because the more active and engaged they are, the more creative they are going to be to excel and progress in that game or in that skill that they're developing or, you know, playing with their peers that they're, you know, the other children of their age and learning of them and being confident in the way that they move and socially interacting. Um, yeah, so we, we are, we are hundred percent believe active, body is a creative mind in all children.
1: Mm, Absolutely, which will certainly help with the sort of academic side of things. But we know that there are benefits linked with how we move and the childhood growth and development that, you know, is expected of a child. So the biological growth and development. And as part of the, the Healthy Shapes Your Child series, I look at the nutritional influences that build a skeleton. Now, bearing in mind that childhood, I refer to you as a window of opportunity for laying down the strong foundations for our adult health. And we kind of have this short window through childhood where we are building a skeleton that has to last us, hopefully, a very long time and put up with an awful lot of wear and tear. And there are two factors in childhood that really can, I, I refer to it as like a bone bank. You know, we invest in our bones, like we would invest money into a bank. And then that skeleton, that childhood skeleton is going to be a strong skeleton for us going forward into adulthood. And the two factors that really influence through early childhood are movement and nutrition. And so there's not one without the other. And if we have an amazingly healthy diet, but don't move very much, the bones are not going to be strong. And if we move an awful lot, but don't have a great diet, the bones are not going to be as strong. And we really do need to focus on the joined up picture of childhood growth and development and, and how everything kind of links together to and the importance of what we do in childhood for adult health. I think people don't often make that link, Now oh, it's okay, there are any children. No, what we do in childhood impacts on
2: their future health. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's really important if we, if we go look the other way and we go from adults down is adults, a healthy relationship with food and nutrition is fueling their body to perform any, you know, daily task. And if we work backwards down to when they're children, it's um, having that um, environment where children are able to explore and be aware of the food that they eat will give them energy to participate in their daily activities, you know. So it is that relationship with working out and realizing that food is about energy, not about treats or, um, you know, it, it fuels your body. That's very much the, the topic that we cover in the how
1: food shapes your child, shaping food Relationships subject. Because again, everything that we do in early childhood, how we talk about food, you've mentioned treats and people often will use food in early childhood for comfort, for reward, for bribe, for incentives, you know, even for punishment. You're not having that because you haven't done this. That really does create quite a warped food relationship that is quite deep rooted because food is so emotive. You know, we all have really strong food memories. You remember being on holiday, you remember a place you ate, and it's like that was 30 years ago, but I can remember having that to eat. You know, it's like it's so emotive. It's really highly memory driven fooders. And so anything that we can make positive associations with food in early childhood is really really important if we're saying to children you've all been really good let's have some chocolate that's kind of making chocolate be this you know put it up on a pedestal and make it this amazing food there's nothing particularly wrong with chocolate but it doesn't deserve to be on a pedestal because nutritionally it's not giving the body anything to really help it grow or give you a real source of energy or anything like that so it's very much the language we use is so important. And we the grown-ups are so influential in that that we really need to be mindful of how influential we really are in shaping young, impressionable food relationships.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And to flip it a little bit back to physical literacy and physical development in the early years, if I may, it's the like when you talked about the language, it's also the Uh, physical presence of those you know practitioners teachers that are working with our children if they're sitting in the corner sitting down looking very unmotivated that is not creating an environment for children to you know feed off that and and it's the same with uh, you know dinner time and they're all sitting around their um, lunch table you know and I guess you would know more about this than me. But, you know, for me, I've seen practitioners, you know, eat your veggies, you know, and it's, it's like they're almost forcing it upon rather than explaining the the benefits of all the food on their plate. That's kind of my
1: my main message, really, is that actually children deserve to understand the food that they eat and they, to understand it, to make empowered food decisions is not telling them what to do. It's, it's giving them the ability to make those informed decisions themselves. And children are more than capable of making a an association between something that is going to do you know something really good for them and to understand the biology of it they're so capable of understanding that from a young age i use an example of my my child he's he's getting a bit older now so he's going to not like me using him as an example all the time but he's been an amazing sort of guinea pig i suppose for the work that i do in the nicest possible sense um in that I, I was quite strict, obviously, with him with food. And I he, I he didn't have refined sugar for quite a long time because it does affect palate development and food preferences and things like that. But anyway, it's hard to do, but it's, 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 it was easy for me. It was easy for him because he didn't know any different. Um, so by the time he got to school and was offered as part of a food tasting session some sweets, he'd never, ever eaten sweets before. And he would got to school, he was in foundation, they were on a plate with other things and he tried it and he just he the texture was alien to him, the the feel of it, the flavor, the everything was alien to him, and he he spat it out so he didn't like it. All the other children were, you know, diving for them, you know, really wanting them. The the, the notion of the sweet not being tasty was just what on earth. You know, it was like, but all children like sweets. All children like sweets. No, they don't, you know, and it's like they are capable of not liking the things that we grown ups automatically expect them to like it's just we need to allow them to make that decision and as he got slightly older he's nine now I said to him Look, it's your decision you can try them again you may have changed you know obviously you're always going to be offered sweets you know you can try them but he still doesn't like them Still doesn't like them. Wow,
2: that's amazing. That's really good.
1: <laughs> so, it, but it shows that you don't need if you're, you know, you don't need to think children must like this. What well, he, he's always offered them at the barbers everywhere you go. What do you mean you don't like them? And it's like, no,
2: we don't need to say that to children. Just accept that they don't like it. You know, it's a little bit off topic, but I was having a think about this when you um, asked me a question a little bit earlier um, about. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but it made me think, and it's linked here now, is, you know how you say like, you know, we were kind of just grown up with sweets being a treat and have chocolate and, you know, ice cream after dinner. Well, that's how I grew up. Um, And it's really funny because I felt like back when I grew up, yes, we had those sweets, but for some reason, we either didn't have the excess that I feel like kids have now, or we actually were in a society of outdoors and active whereas I feel like now we're in a society of indoor and inactive like take my youngest daughter for example okay she's only 13 months but I picked her up from nursery today and I said oh should I take her onesie home and wash it and they said oh no we didn't go outside today and I was like you didn't go outside today but it wasn't raining and it wasn't freezing uh I don't understand (laughs) you know um And so we're just accustomed to be this era, I feel like accustomed to be inside that on top of somehow it being excess amount of sugar um, and seeing different foods as treats or the fact that McDonald's is way cheaper than going and getting anything decent from, you know, Sainsbury's or Waitrose um, is kind of where we're at.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, and that's that is such a big subject and something that I I am working on on another project and hopefully will be something I can launch quite soon. Uh, But it's a it's a major, major problem in that everything around us has changed. The food landscape has changed beyond recognition to what it was twenty years ago, we're starting to see the impact of that on children's health, and that's really the aim of this series: is that there's an assumption that children are exempt from adult diseases. They are not. They just didn't used to get them. We have had in the last twenty years, we've had um, we had the first child diagnosed with type two diabetes in the year two thousand in the UK. And the 20 years since then, so this is the the real drastic change in our food landscape has really taken place in the last 20 years. It's been changing for 40 odd, but the real drastic change in the last 20. We have in the UK today, 3,432 children with type 2 diabetes. So we're starting to see the impacts of those changes on our children and the external environment. So our food landscape has changed. Yes, we move less. We well, I you remember walking to school on my own when I was nine and I've done my son doesn't walk to school on his own, but you know, it was, it, it, it was different. I did what I did go out on my bike more. There was no phone. I didn't have a phone when I was very young. You know, it was just, I just went out and came back when I was hungry. It was just a different kind of world. We did move more. We did do more things, um, and also, I think we just kind of have this, we have more stress. I think children are exposed to more stress than they used to be. And um, From a younger age, they, they see more things online. They're perhaps online a bit more. They, they have more technology around them, which is quite draining. on Even on adults, it's quite draining on our eyes. It's quite draining. And it drains your energy. You lose time to it. So they have a different environment that they're growing up in, very much so. But their biology hasn't changed. So our human biology... Is designed to move, you know, to 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 not sit still, um, to move around, to feel naturally full from food, and to have a natural hormonal balance with food, and all of that is going out of kilter because of processed foods, and they affect the hormones that tell us when we're full, it encourages us to keep eating. So you mentioned the consumption. Yes, consumption's gone up because we're having more of the foods that fuel. That suppress the hormone leptin, which naturally tells us you're full, you're satisfied, you've had enough, stop eating, and encourages the hormone growing, which is like, nah, keep going. You know, so so it becomes a vicious cycle in that we don't know when we're full, we can keep going. And children can come for eat, and the pandemic has most certainly had an impact on childhood obesity, and um, biggest ever increase in childhood obesity in the time of covid um, and beyond. Um, so we will see the impact of that for many years to come. COVID is not just going to go away and that's the end of the virus. No, the impact of COVID will certainly be long lasting and it's, it's not a legacy. I won't use that word, but it's certainly an impact that we will see in children for years to come. Um, so that's all gone a bit deem and gleam. So let's try and jolly things along a bit. <laughs> but it's it's a very real picture and it's why we're doing this it's because it isn't it isn't all you know flowers out there it is a scary situation that our children face and we are trying through our various things that we do to to have a positive impact and the world has changed but what positive things can we do in you know the fact that we've got children who are scared of exercise already putting the barriers up to exercise before they reach primary school what can you advise we do with and grown-ups because great grown up who doesn't like exercise is not going to want to push a child who doesn't like exercise either so what is your best advice for that
2: okay so i think the most important thing to remember is that anything we do with children need to be needs to be fun like if it's fun for a child they're going to keep doing it so so in my opinion creating a fun Learning environment where children are able to practice those fundamental movement skills. So, simply having a day that's structured where they can, even if they can't get outside, it can be in their um, classrooms at nursery or or early years at school, but it's creating an environment where they can move their bodies, whether that is um, learning numeracy um, by practicing hopping or jumping or skipping, whether that is learning to group get into groups with children with their peers um, by letters of the alphabet so so it's that cross-curricular link using different areas of um, learning linking it with allowing the children to move and learn at the same time is I think the number one thing that we can all do is create an active learning environment for children.
1: Mm, absolutely and as you say the the fact that they're moving and doing a i suppose academic activity is gonna it's gonna fire up both areas of the body isn't it it's gonna fire up the brain and the cognitive function and it's gonna fire up all the the muscles and things as well but they won't think they're exercising i think that's the most important thing is that if we just focus on let's do pe you know it's it's those children who have the barriers pe is going to be a scary word for them and once it's a scary word or two words, I suppose, it's two letters, isn't it? Anyway, once it becomes scary, it's very hard to, to overcome that. The
2: barriers go up, don't they? And it's very hard to overcome. Yeah, I think the reason it becomes scary is twofold. One is children, when they get to primary school, because PE isn't done in early years, it is physical development um, and it's the start of their physical literacy journey. And physical literacy is about having the skills, confidence, um, and motivation to be physically active and it starts in early years and it starts through physical development which the key principles are those fundamental movement skills and I think the reason one of the reasons why P becomes scary at secondary school and if children don't enjoy it at secondary school they go on to uh, sorry primary school if they don't enjoy it in primary school they go on to secondary school they don't enjoy it and then they don't carry on into adult life and we know the impact of that but the first thing is that they aren't confident in the way they move, or they know that they are not as fast, as strong as their peers. They know this by the time they're four. You you come to a class, a uh, your preschool class, or a year one class uh, reception class or a year one class, and they can tell you who's the fastest who they think the fittest is, who's the best at this, who's the best at that. They know, right? Children know. So they have to develop confidence early. And the only way to develop confidence early is to give them an environment for them to practice those fundamental movement skills. Um, And then the second thing is, and this is a big passion of mine, which I wish I could change the world, but I can't. And here in the UK, I don't know the stats, but I'm just going to guess that it you know in the state school system it's probably something like you know two out of five schools have dedicated qualified physical education teachers who have gone to university to teach to be teachers of pe and the other the other schools have a funding pot in which they hire sports coaches to come in and deliver a Subject. Now, the physical education (PE) P and sport is a curriculum subject that has seven areas. Football is not an area. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, fitness is not a particular area. It's physical fitness is one. Um, athletics is another. Swimming is another. Dance and movements is another. Invasion games, uh, net and wall games, um, and. S- striking and fielding games. So there's seven elements to the PE curriculum. And the problem is that in most schools, there are sports coaches coming in. It's normally um, a FA, so a football association, level one. So that's basically like asking a teaching assistant who isn't a qualified teacher to teach um, literacy or numeracy for a whole year. <laughs> that's literally what we what we ask these sports coaches. And don't get me wrong, I, I employ some amazing sports coaches and um you know, there are some amazing sports coaches out there, but at the end of the day, they're not qualified teachers and they are asked to teach a subject that has seven elements to it. And our children don't get the benefit of all of those seven elements from a qualified teacher that is able to give them the physical literacy environment that they need to develop into adults who have a lifelong passion for physical activity.
1: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I think that's a really good point to kind of raise in that we do, I think a lot of the time with these sort of the activities, they can be optional as well. So they can be before or after school. And so the ones who want to do them will be the ones who don't potentially need to do them. They'll be the ones who would move around anyway. Um, so but obviously, if it's an integrated part of the, the program, then that can't be an optional. So I think there's, you know, I know, certainly with our school, there are certain things that are optional and extracurricular um, as opposed to being an integral part of the day. There are other things that are, but not as much, you know, perhaps as there should be. And I think that probably is representative of schools in general in that children just don't have the time to move as much as they should. Um, but we don't have a magic wand. There are, I think both of us would love a magic wand. There are many things that I think we would both love to change, but until we can do that, where can people find out more about you and Sporty Minis so that they can um, perhaps look at taking a look at some of your services?
2: Yeah, sure. So we have a YouTube channel, Sporty Minis, our website, sportyminis.com, um, LinkedIn, LinkedIn um, Instagram, we've got Sporty Minis in a few different franchises. So we've got Sporty Minis London, Sporty Minis UK, Sporty Minis Oxfordshire and Sporty Minis Exeter. Um, we have a lot of online resources as well. Um, and uh, lots of free resources on our website that hopefully can make a difference, um, to early years practitioners and teachers and, you know, um, help get our children active, confident and loving all things sport and physical activity. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming along.
0: It's been wonderful having you. Thanks so much for having me, Louise. You've been listening to Louise's Health Kick podcast, the CPD series discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.com. .co.uk or read her book about how food shapes your child. Or why not get in touch on social media and if you've enjoyed this podcast why not like and subscribe to hear more. This is a 1386 audio production.